Father, thank you again for this time to turn to you, to direct our thoughts toward you. And uh, this is obviously a very difficult, uh, dark section of the Bible. And I uh, just pray that somehow the light of your goodness, uh, the light that revealed, was revealed by Jesus about you, would come through just now. Amen. I also just wanted to mention, I, when we talked about forgiveness last time, I didn't have a chance to get through everything I wanted to say about forgiveness. And in fact, left off perhaps a, a verse that some of you were thinking about. How does this harmonize with what we said about forgiveness? Jesus' words, if you forgive others the wrongs they have done to you, your Father in heaven will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive the wrongs you have done. And um, I think since this is uh, kind of involved to go through this, what I've done is up uh, on the website, I've, uh, Greg Boyd has a great little 10, 15 minute uh, sermon, which I put a link to on YouTube. So you can go there and, and hear his description um, of this verse. Okay, so if you were wondering about this one, uh, it's up there, and, and I think he has a, just a great, uh, great description of what Jesus meant when he said this. We talked about this uh, concept earlier when we finished off uh, the book of Genesis. Remember the high road approach, the low road approach to um, going through these verses. Uh, remember the high road approach. What would that mean? Well, that would mean we go through the rest of the book of Numbers and we talk about, um, you know, wow, Moses saw God face to face. They spoke as friends. Uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful, beautiful gem that we should talk a lot about. We could talk about Caleb and Joshua and how they were faithful. And, uh, you know, we could emphasize those good things. We could talk about how God turned Balaam's prophecy into something that was positive. And it would be really nice if we could just skip over the difficult stories uh, here in Numbers. But that would really be to um, ignore what is sometimes called the low road approach. And that is to really acknowledge these, uh, some of these stories that are very violent, very challenging. When we finished off the book of um, Genesis, remember we talked about how uh, Abraham, when God called Abraham out, we have to read into Joshua to get this, but Abraham and his family were worshiping other gods when God called him out to follow him. A bit shocking to, to think about that. Or all of the, um, uh, the multiple wives that some of these great uh, men of faith had in the Bible. Remember the shocking story about uh, uh, Jacob and, uh, or Judah, I'm sorry, and Tamar and some of these things. And we discussed at that time why it is valuable um, to go through those stories. For one thing, it, it can uh, destroy your faith if one day you wake up and recognize all of these stories. Um, so we need to address them and uh, deal with them. The three stories we're going to go through today, when Mark Twain would say this, I think he's thinking about stories like this, where he said, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it is the parts that I do understand. And we have three very understandable stories. The words are not difficult it seems pretty clear what happened. So the question is, what do we make out of God after we read through some of these stories? Okay, so here are the three stories that we're going to go through. First, we'll talk about God sending quail. The people, of course, wanted meat. And while there was still plenty of meat for them to eat, the Lord became angry with them and caused an epidemic to break out among them. Lots of people died. Okay, I don't know if you've seen this, but um, uh, they have... Um, there's an entire, entire Lego reenactment of the whole Bible. And uh, these are really uh, 
Um, some of them are pretty uh, stimulating to look through and see how they reenact some of this, but this is supposed to show Korah's rebellion, and this is the earth opening up and the people falling into the earth, and here is Moses and Aaron standing there watching. Okay, so we'll talk about these people who went down alive to the world of the dead. That's a terrifying story. And then we'll talk about, again, the people grumbling and complaining, and the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many Israelites were bitten and died. Okay, what's our picture of God as we uh, read through these stories? There are several different approaches. One that's very common, uh, just do uh, an internet search on some of these stories. And one approach is to mock. And uh, what, I mean, this is, the Bible is ridiculous. We have these stories, what kind of a God is that that opens up the earth and swallows people up? Okay, and so that is, that's one uh, common approach. People lose their faith and say this is all ridiculous and uh, we make sport of these stories. Another is a very, probably the most common, is to ignore. Uh, let's stick with the Old Testament, or the New Testament. Um, you know, let's read the Gospels, uh, writings of Paul. Uh, these stories and numbers, you know, what does it mean to us today? And so we ignore some of these verses. Well, there's some, some real dangers, I think, to that. Another, which is common in uh, kids' books, is to um, idealize these stories. Uh, it's amazing, as I read these stories through with, with my kids, how the most brutal story in, in a kid's um, version... Oh, for example, I mean, David kills Goliath. And uh, never have I seen a children's book that showed that he decapitated Goliath after he killed him. Um, or they generally don't show the story of... Um, Samuel hewing King Agag in pieces before the Lord, or that when Elijah called down fire from heaven, that's, that's, the, that's the only picture you get in the kids' book. Uh, they don't describe that he went around and killed each one of the prophets of Baal after that. So we can gloss over and, uh, and some of these stories and leave out the, the real challenging parts. Um, another is to um, idolize the stories. And, and what I mean by that is Perhaps subconsciously, we come to see the real God as the God of the Old Testament, you know, the one that does all the tough stuff. Uh, that's what God is really like, and we actually come to uh, wish he would do that more. We appreciate that God does some of these uh, violent things. I mean, that's a God we can really uh, respect, and Jesus can almost vanish into the background. Um, the picture of God that Jesus revealed in contrast to some of these uh, very strong stories, Jesus can become, uh, you know, well, not even seen as God at all compared to uh, God of the Old Testament. And of course, as we've discussed, God of the Old Testament was Jesus, not known by that name. We went through the verses in 1 Corinthians 10, the God who went through the wilderness with the people, that was Christ himself. Jesus, remember, referred to himself as the I Am, same I Am that spoke to Moses. Uh, the burning bush. So we really can't uh, you know, split the Trinity up here and say, well, that was the Father, and now this is uh, something revealed about the Son. And um, so again, our, our dilemma here as we go through these stories is so many times in the New Testament, we are told, Hebrews 1, many other places, Jesus is the perfect reflection of God's character. Remember, Jesus described his mission. I've come to reveal your character. That was his mission. And so is it possible to harmonize Jesus, who never killed anyone, earth never opened up, uh, we never have any of these uh, violent stories um, here in, in the life of Jesus with what we see in, in the God of the Old Testament. 
And um, what I have heard over and over, and I was uh, amazed to find this quote just this last uh, week, but that um, if we want to believe something, the Bible really gives us leeway to believe just about whatever we want. We can selectively highlight Romans 9 or, or different things to, to fit what we want to believe. We need to come up with something that takes the Bible as a whole, every verse. Um, and Some of you may know Alden Thompson, but I like uh, his uh, description that we should really take the verses that don't fit our picture. Memorize those. Work on those. Don't just pick out the ones that, um, that you like. Okay, and I need to remind myself of that frequently, but that, that's very important, I think. And so, um, you know, uh, some that have tried to harmonize the picture of Jesus with the God of the Old Testament always point to one story, and that's Jesus cleansing the temple. And, uh, well, that was certainly a, a violent act. And um, what do you think about these words? My feelings as a Christian points me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter. Jesus was greatest, not as a sufferer, but as a fighter. In boundless love as a Christian and as a man, I read through the passage which tells us how the Lord at last rose in his might and seized the scourge to drive out the temple, the brood of vipers and adders. And uh, this isn't very nice of me to do this to you, but uh, the, the person who said these words was um, Adolf Hitler. Um, as a Christian, he really admired uh, that one violent action. Well, what's interesting about the cleansing of the temple is um, you read the account in Matthew, Jesus cleansed the temple, and the children came to him. The sick and the poor came to him. Um, now, I have three kids, and I can guarantee you that if they're in a room uh, where a man is upset, I mean, the kids are the first ones out of the room, all right? So, something unusual here about Jesus cleansing the temple and the children, the poor, the sick are coming toward him. And as others have said, uh, when he cleansed the, the temple, he attacked the furniture, not the people. Okay, so we'll have to spend some more time talking about that, but we need to take everything that Jesus said and did. And remember last time, and we talked about Jesus told us, turn the other cheek, carry the pack the extra mile, forgive 70 times 70, and just his action and laying down his life, washing the feet of his disciples. Uh, I mean, that is God. Okay, so we're trying to reconcile what Jesus revealed about God with these Old Testament stories. So let's start with the quail. And um, before, when we first went into the book of Numbers, this is where I quoted Moses saying, why don't you just kill me in the desert, God? If you're going to be this cruel to me, why don't you just kill me? I can't take it any longer. Okay, so that's kind of the context. And so God, after the people are all complaining, said, now tell the people, purify yourselves for tomorrow. You will have meat to eat. Okay, this is Moses speaking, actually. The Lord has heard you whining and saying that you wished you had some meat and that you were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will have to eat it. You will have to eat it not just for one or two days or five or ten or even twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your ears, until you are sick of it. This will happen because you have rejected the Lord who is here among you and have complained to him that you should never have left Egypt. Okay, so they're going to get lots of meat. And we read on, I mean, it was, look how high it was stacked up. Suddenly the Lord sent a wind that brought quails from the sea, flying three feet above the ground. They settled on the camp and all around it for miles and miles in every direction. Remember, there were 600,000 men, uh, over 25. So there must have been 2 million people. That's a lot of quail. Okay, so all that day, all night, 
and all the next day the people worked catching quails. No one gathered less than 50 bushels. They spread them out to dry all around the camp. This sounds uh, real hygienic um, here, spreading them all out. And again, here's the difficult part. While there was still plenty of meat for them to eat, the Lord became angry with the people and caused an epidemic to break out among them. Okay, so um, how should we interpret this? Uh, one would be, well, Bible says it. I believe it. That's all there is to it. We've got the plain words here. Let's not do too much uh, thinking about this. We, it's, it's really spelled out uh, quite clearly for us. But um, it's really not that easy because uh, just... For example, I mean, just you know, think about this on this picture on the internet here. Uh, is it conceivable? I mean, if you have uh, dead birds lying around for a period of time, is it is it possible? What you know about medicine that uh, perhaps uh, there could be uh, that some people might get sick in in a situation like that? And of course, that would be a possibility. But it says that God got angry, okay, and the people died. Well. We need to recognize that in the Old Testament, God is frequently described as doing what he allows to occur. And uh, we will try to highlight this in every book of the Bible as we go through. I'll give you a few examples, but there are many, dozens of them. David's description of how Saul would die. David said, by the living Lord, David continued, I know that the Lord himself will kill Saul. Now, how is God going to kill Saul? as David described it, either when his time comes to die a natural death or when he dies in battle. Isn't that interesting? This is how God's going to kill him. He's going to die a natural death or he'll die in battle. And of course, you read on the story, what happened? Saul was in this fight and what did he do? Committed suicide, fell on his sword. Okay, that's pretty clear. Killed himself. But then the description is, after he died, so the Lord killed him. Um, in the King James, thus God slew Saul. And you go back and read the story again. It wouldn't seem that God laid a hand on him, fell on his sword. Okay, but the description is um, God did it. Um, we have to spend the whole Bible study going through these examples. So we'll just, I'll, I'll list a few. Uh, you remember this Job 1, how it opens up. Satan went in and accused Job and God said, okay, um, you can go do your thing. And so Satan leaves God's presence and he sent fire. Remember, uh, uh, the crops were destroyed. And the person who ran to tell Job said, well, the fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. Well, we just read back a few verses. We know that Satan left to do those things to, to Job. But I mean, where else? How could fire come down? It must be God that uh, sent the fire. I'll just give you one other example. The destruction of... Um, uh, Jerusalem by the Babylonians. This is in Jeremiah. These would seem to be very clear, unambiguous words of God, where he would say, I will fight against you with all my might, my anger, my wrath, my fury. I will kill everyone living in this city. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. But then we read on a few verses. It will be given over to the king of Babylonia, and he will burn it to the ground. I, the Lord, have spoken. And you just read the actual event, what happened, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians came and burned down Jerusalem, even though we have this description here that uh, very clearly that God would do it. Okay, so we have these, these contrasts here. I'll bring up a few um, here later on in the Bible study, but uh, the question is, is it reasonable then to perhaps take the approach 
that we have those words in the Bible, but that instead what is being described is a natural consequence. Um, God sent manna, of course. Okay, there was no uh, want for food, but the people weren't happy with the manna. Um, most of you don't have kids, but um, certainly these stories, it's been helpful for me having kids. When your kids want something you know is not good for them, and they persist, and they persist, and they persist, well, sometimes the best thing to do is just to give it to them. Okay, and you experience something that's very unpleasant. Okay, sometimes that uh, works a lot better than, you know, mom or dad just nagging. Don't do that, don't do that. Okay, and so you, they experience something that is unpleasant, and then they realize, okay, that really was, uh, you know, something to, to be avoided. Well, uh, let's kind of uh, hold that and let's move on uh, to the next story. And that is God sending the poisonous snakes. So the Israelites left Mount Hor, but on the way the people lost their patience and spoke against God and Moses. They complained, why did you bring us out of the desert, out of Egypt to die in this desert where there is no food or water? Um, isn't it interesting how often food is an issue? Um, you know, Adam and Eve, or Eve at the tree with the fruit. Here we got continually the food is a complaint in the, in the desert. What was Satan's first temptation to Jesus? Turn this uh, stone into bread. Um, kind of interesting here, but they're complaining about the food again. We can't stand any more of this miserable food. And then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many Israelites were bitten and died. Now, um, I know many of you here are not uh, Seventh-day Adventists, but um, you know, I wanted to look up and see, well, how would Ellen White interpret a story like this? And uh, let's, her description, I think, is consistent with, uh, with what uh, I just tried to describe with the quail. See if you agree with this. Every day of their travels, they had been kept by a miracle of divine mercy. In all the way of God's leading, they had found water to refresh the thirsty, bread from heaven to satisfy their hunger, and peace and safety under the shadowy cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Angels administered to them as they climbed the rocky heights or threaded the rugged paths of the wilderness. Notwithstanding the hardships they had endured, there was not a feeble one in all their ranks. And when we get to Deuteronomy, we'll, we'll read how uh, God really had miraculously uh, um, kept these people um, healthy. There was, uh, their feet had not swollen, that's from Deuteronomy. In their long journey, neither had their clothes grown old. God had subdued before them the beasts, fierce beasts of prey and the venomous reptiles of the forest and the desert. If with all these tokens of his love, the people still continued to complain, now notice what would happen in describing this story. The Lord would withdraw his protection until they should be led to appreciate his merciful care and return to him with repentance and humiliation. Because they had been shielded by divine power, they had not realized the countless dangers by which they were continually surrounded. In their ingratitude and unbelief, they had anticipated death, and now the Lord permitted death to come upon them. The poisonous serpents that infested the wilderness were, were called fiery serpents on account of the terrible effects produced by their sting, causing violent inflammation and speedy death. And again, as the protecting hand of God was removed from Israel, great numbers of the people were attacked by this venomous creatures. Um, is it reasonable to take this approach? God sent the poisonous snakes, but 
perhaps the reality is really God had protected them miraculously through the desert that as the people essentially said again and again, God, get lost, get lost. We wish we had stayed in Egypt, that God really uh, obeyed their wishes and he left them. Okay, and there were uh, horrible, devastating consequences. Um, well, we read on the story. I find this quite interesting that the people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Now pray to the Lord to take these snakes away. So Moses prayed for the people, and then the Lord told Moses to make a metal snake and put it on a pole so that anyone who was bitten could look at it and be healed. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole, and anyone who had been bitten would look at the bronze snake and be healed. Uh, what's interesting, when we get to um, 2 Kings, the people began worshiping this bronze snake. And uh, King Hezekiah had to destroy the bronze snake because it had become a, a, an object of worship. Well, the question is, what happened to Satan in the Old Testament? I can't help think of this here as we have these snakes suddenly uh, coming out of the woodworks to, to bite the people. And, um, you know, there are very few actual references to Satan in the Old Testament, even here in the garden. I mean, we naturally assume, well, that's Satan in the tree, doesn't actually say that. Okay, it was the crafty, subtle, cunning serpent. Um, it isn't until the, the last book of the Bible, Revelation 12, where it's very clearly the ancient serpent of old, who is the devil, that is Satan. Okay, we really um, can't say conclusively until you know, Revelation nails it down for us. Okay, why not? The things that we have quoted here is referring to Satan throughout the Bible study. Uh, Isaiah 14 is really a, a song to the king of Babylon. Okay, how you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, uh, in the Latin Lucifer, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world, but doesn't actually say uh, that this was Satan. Um, I think, again, in the book of Revelation, we can make such a good case that this is referring to Satan. In Ezekiel 28, it's a song to the king of Tyre. Son of man, sing this funeral song for the king of Tyre. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And um, again, it sure seems to be describing Satan, but it doesn't come out and say it. Um, king of Tyre. And even in the book of uh, Job, where we do have Satan in the beginning of the book by name, but Job never learns about Satan. It uh, wouldn't appear. And instead, instead, God comes on the stage at the end of the book and describes... Um, Leviathan. And just uh, listen to the description here and just see if this might be describing someone. His pride is invincible. Nothing can make a dent in that pride. Nothing can get through that proud skin, impervious to weapons and weather. When it raises itself up, the gods are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Nothing on earth is his equal, a creature without fear. He looks down on all that are haughty. He is king over all that are proud. Um, could it be that God is trying to uh, describe someone here. Well, it doesn't actually come out and say that it is Satan. So the question is, why not? We get to the New Testament, and Satan is coming out of the woodworks everywhere. I mean, Jesus begins his ministry, and in Mark 1, you read that the Spirit drove him into the desert to confront Satan. And we have all these demon-possessed people, um, you know, the woman who was bent over, that uh, Jesus healed on the Sabbath, uh, he said, shouldn't I do this thing on the Sabbath? This woman has been afflicted by Satan for uh, 18 years. Uh, the writings of Paul, 
I mean, Satan is everywhere. The, the book of Revelation, um, very clear. Why don't we find that in the Old Testament? And would it be important that we recognize a relative absence of Satan in the Old Testament? Who's Leviathan? Well, let's, let's tie it with this verse in Isaiah. And this is uh, Isaiah 27 is, would appear to be describing very end-time events. On that day, the Lord will use his fierce and powerful sword to punish Leviathan, that slippery snake. Leviathan, that twisting snake. Now, how many slippery, twisting snakes are there in the Bible? He will kill that monster which lives in the sea. So, again, I think this is an allusion um, to Satan, but it doesn't come out and say it in so many words. Um, Alden Thompson, who's a, a Hebrew scholar and uh, has written a great book. It's called Who's Afraid of the Old Testament God? And uh, let me just read his descriptions. And he talks about this, the relative absence of Satan in the Old Testament. The nations surrounding Israel were polytheistic, worshiping many gods. In a polytheistic culture, the good things are attributed to the good gods, the bad things to the evil ones. And those evil deities could be so volatile that humans were constantly brewing up incantations and magic rituals to placate them. The great danger for Israel lay in the temptation to worship Satan as another god. So rather than just forbidding magic and incantation, God went a step further and claimed full responsibility for both good and evil. As a result, throughout most of its pages, the Old Testament portrays God as the active agent in all things. God is the one who causes everything. Satan simply drops from sight until the very end of the Old Testament. And just as, as one verse on this here in Isaiah 45, and where God would say, I create both light and darkness. I bring both blessing and disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Okay, so um, is this a reasonable interpretation? Well, Alden would go on. Indeed, only three passages in the entire Old Testament are explicit in their reference to the Satan, who was God's great adversary. And all three passages were either written or canonized toward the end of the Old Testament period. Okay, and in our best example, this is such an important one um, to recognize. We have a very early book here in the canon, Samuel. And the description here of David giving the census in Samuel, this very early book, is that the Lord was angry at Israel again, and he made David think it would be a good idea to count the people in Israel and Judah. Okay, we read the description of the exact same event in Chronicles, which is at the very end of the canon. Same event, and now it is Satan wanted to bring trouble on the people of Israel, so he made David decide to take a census. Okay, in, in the early part, we have God doing it. Uh, in the much, much later description, we have Satan doing it. Okay, so I, I like the description here that um, God kind of kept Satan under wraps. And he didn't really reveal and expose Satan um, until he could defeat him. Okay, Jesus Christ came to defeat Satan. He exposed him um, again and again on the cross, uh, ultimately. Lots of uh, verses to support that. And so he revealed, exposed, and defeated him uh, simultaneously in the person of Jesus Christ. So I think we have to see this picture um, unfolding. And now maybe it's dangerous to bring such a, a big subject up in, in, the, in, in a few minutes, but the serpent that was 
held up on the pole, the bronze snake in the wilderness. Uh, isn't it interesting that Jesus would refer to this same event when he would say, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the desert, in the same way the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, what are we supposed to associate between serpents biting people, people dying, and uh, the pole lifted up in numbers with the death of Jesus? Um, I think there is a relationship. I mean, what, what would it mean if uh, you understood here that when God withdrew and left you, because that's what you wanted, that all of a sudden there is chaos, you're getting bit by snakes, people are dying. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't the meaning of that, lifting up the serpent, be, um, hey, you know what, uh, you know, God, when he was with us, protected us. When he left us, uh, we die, we get bitten by snakes. Uh, it's horrible. I mean, you, you can see the, the two ways there very clearly. So the question is, what do we see at the cross? Uh, the cross reveals more than the character of God. Um, although it's, it's the clearest uh, moment in history where we see the character of God. I think that at the cross we also see uh, the malignant nature of sin. What did Jesus cry out as he died on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you let me go? Why have you given me up? Um, what happens when sin separates us from God? Okay, it has horrible natural consequences. So, uh, for example, just one verse on this in Isaiah uh, prophetically, you know, looking forward to Jesus. He was hated, rejected. His life was filled with sorrow and terrible suffering. No one wanted to look at him. We despised him and said, he's a nobody. He suffered and endured great pain for us. And I find this significant. We thought his suffering was punishment from God. Okay, many have thought that. But what actually punished Jesus on the cross? He was wounded and crushed because of or by our sins. Again, what does sin do? It, it creates a separation between us and God. And I think we really do not see uh, the full manifestation of that. In fact, I think the only place we really see it is at the cross. Um, remember the warning to Adam and Eve, you know, in the day you eat this fruit, you will die. In, in the Good News Bible, the same day. And they live for a thousand years. Okay, so... Um, is there really, if, if God truly were to leave us, uh, would there be a natural consequence of that? I think we really only see that at the cross. And we see that the, the real, I think, if, again, looking back into the, the snakes in the desert, the, the message there should be to be afraid of leaving God's side, not to be afraid of God. And the message of the cross, I think, should not be fear of God. Look what God is going to do to me uh, if I rebel. But rather we see the inherent malignant nature of sin, what separation from God results in. Okay, so I think there are uh, significant parallels between Numbers, uh, the bronze snake, uh, and the, the cross. Well, let's go through the last story. And for me, this is the hardest one, uh, and that is Korah's rebellion. <clears throat> Korah from the Levite clan of Kohath rebelled against the leadership of Moses. And you, you, know, you have to feel for Moses here. Uh, I left out the story, but Miriam and Aaron rebelled against Moses. And they said, hasn't God spoken to us too? Okay, everyone's questioning Moses' authority. I mean, jealousy is, is a horrible thing. And so Korah was joined by three members of the tribe of Reuben, Reuben and by 250 other Israelites, well-known leaders chosen by the community. This was not a, a small-time uh, rebellion here. They assembled before Moses and Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far. 
All the members of the community belong to the Lord, and the Lord is with all of us. So they're actually claiming that God is on their side, not Moses. Why then, Moses, do you set yourself up above the Lord's community? When Moses heard this, he threw himself on the ground and prayed. Then he said to Korah and his followers, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show us who belongs to him. He will let the one who belongs to him, that is, the one he has chosen, approach him at the altar. Tomorrow morning you and your followers take fire pans, put live coals and incense on them, and take them to the altar, and then we will see which of us the Lord has chosen. You Levites are the ones who have gone too far. So Moses continued to speak to Korah. Listen, you Levites, do you consider it a small matter that the God of Israel has set you apart from the rest of the community so that you can approach him, perform your service in the Lord's tent, and minister to the community and serve them? He has let you and all the other Levites have this honor. And now you are trying to get the priesthood too? When you complain against Aaron, it is really against the Lord that you and your followers are rebelling. And then Moses sent for Dathan and Abiram. But they said, we will not come. Isn't it enough that you have brought us out of the fertile land of Egypt to kill us here in the wilderness? Do you also have to lord it over us? You certainly have not brought us into a fertile land or given us fields and vineyards as our possession, and now you are trying to deceive us. We will not come. Moses became angry and said to the Lord, Do not accept any offerings these men bring. I have not wronged any of them. I have not even taken one of their donkeys. And here's, I think, a significant uh, point to perhaps uh, understand this story better. Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow... You and your 250 followers, remember those were like the religious uh, community leaders, okay? Just that group must come to the tent of the Lord's presence. Aaron will also be there. Each of you will take his fire pan, put incense on it, and then present it at the altar. Okay, but notice what happened. So they each took their fire pans, put live coals and incense on them, and stood at the entrance of the tent that Moses, uh, with Moses and Aaron, but meanwhile, Korah had stirred up the entire community against Moses and Aaron, and they all gathered at the tabernacle entrance. And they stood facing Moses and Aaron at the entrance of the tent. So Moses said, hey, bring the 250 uh, that are really with you in this. And what happened? They brought the whole community. I mean, wouldn't this suggest that everyone was against Moses? I mean, he really stood alone, it would seem. The whole community is there on Korah's side. And suddenly, the dazzling light of the Lord's presence appeared to the whole community. Again, they're all there. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, move back from these people and I will destroy them immediately. But Moses and Aaron bowed down with their faces to the ground. Again, notice, uh, Moses didn't um, say, that's right, God, they had it coming. Let them have it. No, they bowed down Again, the whole community is there and said, Oh God, you are the source of all life. When one of us sins, do you become angry with the whole community? And again, if you were part of the whole community and you had sided with Korah at this time, and now you see God saying, I'm going to wipe them all out, uh, would that instill a little uh, trust in Moses if you see Moses there pleading with God for you? Um, I think... I think it should have said, well, I guess maybe Moses really was on God's side. Okay, and then you know what happened. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people to move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. 
And then Moses, accompanied by the leaders of Israel, went to Dathan and Abiram. He said to the people, Get away from the tents of these wicked men and don't touch anything that belongs to them. Otherwise, you will be wiped out with them for all their sins. And so they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing at the entrance of their tents with their wives and children. And Moses said to the people, This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things, and that it is not by my own choice that I have done them. If these men die a natural death without some punishment from God, then the Lord did not send me. But if the Lord does something unheard of, and the earth opens up and swallows them with all they own, so that they go down alive to the world of the dead, you will know that these men have rejected the Lord. Now, what is God supposed to do in this circumstance? The whole community here is around Moses, and Moses has just said, if something unheard of doesn't happen here, if the earth doesn't open up, then God has not been with me. Well, and that's exactly what happened. As soon as they finished speaking, the ground under Dathan and Abiram split open and swallowed them and their families together with all of Korah's followers and their possessions. So they went down alive to the world of the dead with their possessions. The earth closed over them and they vanished. All the people of Israel who were there fled when they heard their cry. They shouted, run, the earth might swallow us too. And then the Lord sent a fire that blazed out and burned up the 250 men who had presented the incense. Okay, this is Mark Twain's key story here for describing that God of the Old Testament uh, certainly doesn't look a thing like Jesus. Okay, but let's just imagine here, we, we have to kind of recreate the setting, uh, which we can't really do, but I mean, you, this would be impressive, wouldn't you think? You're part of the whole community, you've just watched the earth open up, the fire consume 250 people. Uh, wouldn't you be a little bit intimidated to speak against Moses at this point? I mean, if we're having a debate on uh, uh, the right atonement model, and one group that had this view of the atonement, the room swallowed them up. Uh, you know, um, we, might, um, well, we might quiet down a little bit if that was your atonement model. We'd keep it quiet a little bit. Okay, but without skipping forward, the, the, the story just reads on, and I find this very shocking. The next day, the whole community complained against Moses and Aaron and said, you have killed some of the Lord's people. I mean, these are hard-hearted people. How do you reach someone that despite, despite the earth opening up and fire breaking out all over the place, the next day they're back um, going against Moses again? Okay, and again, um, as a parent, perhaps, if you have a really rebellious child, you might need to do some things that uh, might be um, rather shocking. I don't know, but we see God here, I think, having to speak a language that these people can understand. And, and the verse I really like always to put with stories like this in Hosea, the people of Israel are as stubborn as mules. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? Um, you have to reach a stubborn mule with actions that uh, a stubborn mule can understand. And again, there may be a better way of understanding this story, but uh, that's, that's where I'm at right now. But I think it is still possible to see God basically saying, look, I'm either going to have to let these people go um, or stick with them. But sticking with them means uh, doing some things that uh, might offend us here in the 21st century. All right, so let's pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we pray that as we um, think about these stories, that, um, again, our center, the, the center of everything, would still be 
what was revealed about you by Jesus. And uh, pray that the light from the cross from those three and a half years may illuminate everything else. In your name we pray. Amen.